scripture passage today. Genesis 6 through 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourselves an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The water prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and it and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Caroline. That was so good. I, I think we should have given her more of the verses to read, right? You know, there's four whole chapters. I, could, I got some more for you if you're, if you're ready. Uh, well, my, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I am uh, the associate pastor here, and 
we have, over the last couple of weeks, begun a, a new series, a series where we are, that we're calling the, the Bible's Greatest Hits. And what we're doing is we're just uh, looking through some stories, the kinds of stories that maybe if you picked up a, a children's storybook Bible that you would find, the stories that were uh, really foundational, stories that are meant to be, uh, I should say, foundational to our faith, to our conceptions of ourself, to our identities, to, to who God is. And yet they're stories that we tend to not take very seriously. Like you just heard this story, and I don't know when the last time you read Noah and the Ark was, but I'm guessing that it was a, a notch darker than you remembered it from the last time you read it. And yet, we have a way of, of telling Noah and the flood and the ark uh, that is like the preeminent children's story, right? It's like there's a boat, and there's furry animals aboard the boat. Like, what's not to love about this? In fact, uh, just as an example of how much we don't even think about the story we're telling, when I was a kid, I, our, I went to a big church, and, and in the church, all of the children's classrooms were in the basement of the building, right? So from you know nurseries uh, up to the sixth grade, if you went to Sunday school, you had to descend the stairs into the bowels of, of the building to go to Sunday school. And somewhere in the mid-90s, somebody who knows the Bible really well, I'm sure, someone who knows Jesus and, and loves him, thought, you know what would be a great idea? Let's paint the, the Grace Kids zone, kids with a Z. Uh, well, let's paint that zone all Noah's Ark themed, right? So as you walk down the stairs, you see the water level rising above your head, you know, so that kids every day when they went to Sunday school could feel what it feels like to be uh, under God's judgment as, as they and the rest of creation are perishing. It's a really bad idea, isn't it? It's a really bad idea that nobody noticed because they had stopped taking the story seriously. But maybe you're here this morning and you are not a, a church kind of person. Maybe you're not a Christian and you find yourself here this morning and, and you've got bigger concerns than the paint of, of children's classrooms. You're going, that's kind of messed up. In fact, that's really messed up. In fact, I would be really deeply offended if I even thought there was a remote chance that this story was real. I can't really take a story like this seriously. But in either case, uh, we've neglected to read the story. We've, we've neglected to, to hear the message that the, uh, our, our ancient ancestors have passed down to us, a story that they thought revealed a whole lot about us. And they thought that it revealed a whole lot about God to us. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at one of the thing, the two of the things that I think are, are most difficult for us in this passage. And I'll give you a hint. They're, they're not related to, to geology or science. They're not related to ancestry or, or transmission of the text. They're these. I think this text tells us that we don't really know ourselves and that we don't really know our God. We don't really know ourselves, and we don't really know 
our God. First, we don't really know uh, ourselves. Well, what does the text tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we are um, evil, rotten slave drivers. How's that for a cheery introduction to the text, right? You saw it as, as you uh, heard Caroline reading it. He saw, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like how bad of a view do you have to have of somebody to write that, that sentence, right? That the every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like you need to, you need to sentence diagram this, right? Like you grammarians, you need to like break out the, the, the clauses here. What word is describing what? There's so many bad words in that sentence. And yet if we're taking the story seriously, that's what it says about you. It's what it says about me. It's what it says about every man, woman, and child on the earth. But it doesn't just say we're evil. It says that we're the, the, the rot of the earth. 6.11 says the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And it says it's not an accident that it's corrupt and, and filled with violence. It says why? Because all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Because the earth is filled with violence through them, which is us. God has a, a view of us. This story tells us right from the get-go, right from the start, that we are the, the rot of the earth. Think about the way that rot works. This, uh, this well, a couple weeks ago, uh, Whitney and I decided to do a, a slight little home repair project, right, where we just replaced the tile in our, our bathroom. And so we pulled off just a piece of the trim tile out in front of our bathroom. And what we found when we pulled off that piece was a mask of black, black mold, mildew. Stuck your finger in it, and your, your finger went through that green board that's supposed to be, you know, mildew-resistant shower board around your, your shower, soaking wet. You pull up the, the concrete board, and... and and the subfloor underneath, a layer of hardwood, and then uh, two layers of linoleum. This is a midtown house, by the way. Um, and then a, another layer of one-bys underneath. And, and you can pick it up with your hands. It's like mulch underneath. Because that shower had been leaking water, and that water had been doing its job on that wood. It had been slowly eating its way like a cancer eats through the body, eating its way through the floor spreading mold, spreading destruction, and everywhere in its path. And so what do we do as a homeowner? Well, we start pulling apart the tile farther and farther, trying to find where the rot ends, but the rot doesn't end because that's not what rot does. Rot goes to the, the furthest point it can. And by the time we had ripped out all the rot, we had nothing left in our bathroom but a hole in the ground that went down to our crawl space. God says that if we try to remove the rot out of the earth, if we try to remove the evil out of the earth, we would have nothing left but a hole. Because the claim of this text is that the evil that we experience in this world, the heartache, the brokenness, the violence that is seen on this earth, 
the frustrated lives that even creatures ex- live, uh, experience on this earth, or it's because of us. We are the evil that is holding those, those animals in bondage. We are the cancer who is destroying this earth. It's not a very cheery picture, is it? And maybe you're here this morning and, and stories like we see fill our headlines. The grief of, of someone like Sequoia Samuels, a sweet little girl who perished this week, and, and the evilness of mankind is not hard to imagine. Maybe there are moments in your life when you think, yeah, we really are the rot of the earth. But my hunch is, is that, that this morning most of us feel a little bit defensive. We feel a little bit of a, hey, hey now, wait a second. We're not that bad. And so we try to defend ourselves the way that we always try to defend ourselves, right? As we begin to throw stones back. We say, well, now, wait a second, God. You're saying we're the problem. Look at what you just did. It says that you destroyed all the flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. It says that you just destroyed and squashed creation, God, you breathed life into these humans, and now you buried them. God, you meticulously separated waters from the land, and now you wash them all together. We see creation itself has fallen apart, and we know where to point the finger, don't we? Because we can't point it at ourselves, so we got to point it at him. A couple weeks ago, I came across a, uh, a, a little clip. That was titled, like, you know, uh, atheism or something. I don't know. So I, I, I watched it. And it was a clip from this uh, TV show, uh, Young Sheldon. Are you guys familiar with this? It's a spinoff of, of this show, uh, Big Bang Theory. Full disclosure, I've never seen a full episode of either of these two shows. Uh, but it makes a good illustration, so I'm going to pretend like I have. Uh, the, in the clip, you see this little eight-year-old boy who's, who's a genius, totally socially awkward, OCD. He's got a, uh, this funny mixture of this kid. But this eight-year-old boy who's this genius has decided that uh, he was an atheist. And as he's poked and prodded in this video to describe his, his atheism, why is it that he is, that he believes the way that he is? He, he responds this way. He says, with his bow tie on, you know, his collared shirt buttoned all the way to the top, well, is it more comforting to believe in a God who would flood the whole world and kill everyone because he had a bad day? Do you notice the stone that he's throwing? Now, you can look at what God did, and you can say, I am, I am morally superior to God. That inside of me, and apart from God, I can tell that what God has, has judged, that when God judged the damage to the earth, and he said it, was, it needed to be ripped out, that he was wrong in doing that, that he is morally evil. But do you notice how Sheldon had to twist the story to defend himself? He had to twist the story in this way. He, he had to make it that God was doing this arbitrarily. That he just did this because he had a bad day. He was in a bad mood. 
He sounds like uh, Sheldon, and his character in this story makes it sound like God is a God like that existed in the, the, the Babylonians, who floods the earth and destroys it because those, those humans were kind of annoying. They were a little loud for the, the God of the Babylonians' taste. But that's not what the text says, is it? The text goes to enormous lengths. I have like a, a list of like six different really unique ways in which this text goes out of its way to proclaim to you that God is, is heartbroken, that God is, is, is distraught at the level of destruction that has been done to this world. You can say that what God did is wrong, but to say that God did it arbitrarily or that this text uh, represents God like he has uh, just tried to, to take over the world like a vigilante is to lie. But it's the kind of lie we make to ourselves all the time. Because if we can't blame ourselves for the evil in this world, then we got to blame someone, even if that means blaming God. And there's all sorts of things that we could talk about, reasons why that is, but I think what might be the strongest is because we simply can't tolerate it. We can't bear to hear God look at us and say that, the every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. We throw stones at God because we feel like the stones of the world are raining down on us before he ever gets started. I came across this meme uh, the other day. It was like, you know, from some sort of internet post, and, and it was a screenshot of it, and, and somebody had proposed this hypothetical, right? They had said, uh, okay, you're offered $50,000, but if you accept it, the person you hate most in the entire world gets $100,000. You taking it? And somebody had, like, responded to the thread and said, yeah, why wouldn't I want $150,000? Because we know a lot about self-hate, don't we? This week, I was... Uh, found myself driving down Poplar, and I was uh, late, really late, like two hours late to a meeting and, and feeling like I had let somebody down, like I was a failure. And as I'm driving, my phone is, is buzzing and it's beeping, and my mind is rehearsing all of the duties that I have neglected all the to-do list items that I have not done or have done poorly. And they all screamed in the same tone of voice, you are a failure. And when my mind is racing, thinking of all the ways that I have failed the world, the, a, a friend, a friendship that imploded five years ago comes to my brain. And over and over again, I think I failed that person. I did what was evil. And as I'm driving, trying to desperately to make it downtown to this meeting that I feel like I should have been at hours ago, my phone rings and uh, Whitney is asking me, she says, hey, have, did you put that letter in the mailbox? You know, the one you promised your daughter you would send two days ago. And I snapped. 
Because what I heard in her words is, you are a failure, and I could not in that moment handle another thing that I wasn't good enough for. I couldn't handle the idea that I had messed up. Because to say that I was a failure, to say another thing was ill or wrong about me was something that I could not handle. That's a small, silly way. But if you've lived enough of life, you know that there's great big things. And they mount up in your brain regrets and shame anxieties and fears. And so to come to this story, a story that goes into such elaborate detail to tell you how bad you are, you just want to shut the book and run away. You want to take the finger that you feel like is pointing at you and you want to point it in any other direction. In fact, you'll do almost anything to avoid the gaze of this text. It tells you you don't really know yourself. But what if, what if this text pointing the finger at us isn't to condemn us and promise us judgment, but to promise us healing? What if this text doesn't point the finger at us, not to hold us in chains of bondage, but to give us hope of freedom? What if this text says you believe that judgment is the final word on your life, then maybe there just, maybe God has something else going here. And you begin to see that your confusion is telling you not just that you don't really know yourself and how bad you really are, but you don't really know your God either. As you look at the text here, you see the story after it just tears us apart, up and down, it goes on and it seems, quite frankly, to get worse. Because it seems to confirm all of our worst fears. That our mistakes will indeed bury us in, in the floodwaters of judgment. That such violence is inescapable that really God does hate us. And yet the, the, the story seems to offer us this little loophole, this little loophole whose name is Noah. And then the beginning in, in chapter 6, it tells us that Noah is a good dude. He's one of the good ones, that he is, in fact, a, it says in verse 9, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And there's some part of our hearts that subconsciously perks up their ears and we say, okay, maybe, just maybe we're not as bad off as we think we are. Or maybe, just maybe, there's a way that there are some people who are good enough that they can make their way onto the boat, that they can escape the, 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 the finger of judgment, the finger of hostility. And we watch as God takes this righteous man and, and his family, along with some of the animals, and puts him safely aboard this ship, a ship that rocks as the waves and the waters come. And we think, maybe we could survive. The story goes on and into chapter 8 as the, the floodwaters recede, and, and God allows the passengers on the boat to, to disembark. 
And the language of the text starts to pick up all of these allusions to Genesis 1 and 2, the linguistic connections between Genesis chapter um, 8 and 9 and, and Genesis 1 and 2 are astounding. And we watch as God, who has destroyed and dismantled his creation, begins to rebuild it. And piece by piece, he begins to, to bring about a, a, a new creation. He's rebuilding uh, the earth at, just as he did in the beginning, but he did it with one exception. Instead of Adam, who was sinful, we have Noah, who seems to be righteous. That God was going to rebegin his creation. That once again, he was going to, to look on mankind and say, I will, will, will channel my grace and my stewardship and my care for my creation through you. You are the designated representatives to be, to fill this wor world with grace and peace and justice and beauty. And for a moment there, we think we can avoid the pointing finger of judgment if we could be like Noah until we get to chapter 21 of verse 8. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> verse 21 of chapter 8. Because there we see as God makes this commitment that he will change his path, that he will know never again curse the ground because of man, he says this phrase, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, I want you to ask this. Who is that talking about? According to the story, humanity has just been erased from the face of the earth except for the one good, righteous Noah and his family. The hero of the story, Noah, is the only man left. So who is it that God is looking at and saying his heart is only evil? Language that might sound familiar from chapter 6. God is saying that this hero, the one who's one of the good ones, the one who gives us hope that maybe we're not as bad off as we think we are, God says, looks into his heart and says that every intention of your heart, Noah, from your youth is only evil. And in case we were a little slow on the upkeep, maybe you glossed over that, the story of Noah ends in the, the, one of the most bizarre epilogues in all of the, the Hebrew scriptures. An epilogue that uh, begins in 9 chapter 20. I, I printed just the first two verses mostly so we could have this, this fun little uh, finish before we read it. Then Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This is the word of the Lord. But if you thought Noah was the hero, if you thought Noah was the way that, that, that humanity could escape God's judgment, you finish this story very depressed because good, righteous Noah finishes the story drunk, naked, spewing curses at his children. Humanity, redemption, hope, healing that could not come through righteous Noah 
because Noah wasn't so righteous after all. And so you can begin, if you've been reading the text, to, to, to wonder what is God doing? Why, if we are so bad, if we are so evil, if men and women and children are the cancer of this earth, the, 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 the slaveholders holding creation in bondage to corruption, then what is God doing? Indeed, you could probably picture the, the animals, uh, if, if they had the ability to think like this, if they saw God recreating the new earth, uh, recreating it in a way that he could do anything he wants to do with his creation. And they see uh, God look at Noah and look at mankind and say, um, I am going to uh, rebuild this world through you. And they see God once again choose man and women to be God's representatives on the earth. You can imagine the squirrels going, no. You can imagine the, the, the elephants in, in desperation, right? We've tried this story before and it went horribly wrong. God, why would you choose sinful, evil men? and women to be your image on the earth. God, couldn't you choose new representation at this point? But God doesn't. Because God knows, God knows that as big and as evil and as destructive as mankind's heart is, it is no match for the size of his mercy. God looks at mankind, he looks at Noah, and he knows that he is rotten to the core. But he also knows. He knows that his redemption, he knows that his forgiveness, he knows that his hope is bigger than Noah's sin. And that's a real hope to you and to I. You know, we are... Uh, you know, it's Father's Day, so I've got to put a Father's Day illustration in here somewhere. You know, uh, when someone becomes a parent, they, uh, they make this really beautiful decision. A decision that they say, I am going to love this child no matter what. But the trick is, is that they have no idea what they are committing to, do they? Those of you who uh, have a father, you know that your father had no idea how much it would cost to love you, did he? He had no idea who you would be. He had no idea the mistakes that you would cause. He didn't know how many broken windows and dirty diapers he would have to absorb for you. And if you have a child, you look at that child and you want to promise to them that you will always be there for you, but you don't really know the cost. But when God looks at Noah, he is not surprised. When God makes promises to Noah that there is a redemption that is possible, he is not taken off guard by Noah's drunkenness or his nakedness or his cursing. God, when he looks at Noah and he says, through you, 
will I reestablish my, crea- or my creation? He knew exactly how much that decision would cost him, and he made it all the same. Because God says that the final word over my creation, my final word over my children does not have to be the kind of destruction we saw in the flood. There is a final word, and it is grace. It is redemption. It is hope. You see, we want to distance ourselves from the accusation of being evil, of being cancer, of being mold and rot in God's world because we think that if we accept that label that there is no hope for us. And in this text, we see Jesus come, I mean, we see God come to Noah under the specific auspices of him being rot evil, destructive to his world, and says, I am sticking with my plan to love you, to cherish you, to care for you. Second Peter, Peter, many years later, would look back at this text, and he would be in shock and, and awe at God's decision, because in this, this text, God says to Noah, he says, I am not going to treat you the way that your sins deserve. I am going to wait. I will never again destroy the earth in the way that I have. I will give you this sign that I will, I will put a rainbow in the sky. But the Hebrew doesn't say rainbow, it says bow. Which in every other occurrence that we can find in the Hebrew Scriptures means a, a war bow. A bow, the kind of bow you put an arrow in to, to shoot and to destroy and to harm. And so when God says, I will no longer destroy this earth, I'm hanging up my bow, it's this image of of a warrior or a hunter who has come back from, from his deeds of violence, and he has deliberately chosen that the time of of vengeance is not now. He hangs his bow up on the wall because he's not going to use it. Do you get the picture? God wants us to read the story of the flood and feel the weight of our mistakes, to feel the weight of our rebellion, to see how evil we really are. And he wants us to see that his plan for us is not destruction. His plan for us is forgiveness. His plan for us is redemption. His plan for us is is the new heavens and the new earth. Why do I tell you this? God tells us this story because he knows that there is a day coming if it hasn't come already. And a day that will come again when you will be confronted with the wickedness of your heart. And as much as you will, will deflect and, and, def- and, and, and pretend like your heart is not evil, the results will be staring at you in the face. You will see the people that you have harmed. You will see the, the, the wickedness that you have done on this earth, and that is enough to crush you, to destroy you. The reality to look in ourselves and, and to see ourselves rightly is, is a depressing sort of thing, the kind of, of, of event that you would do anything to avoid. 
But God puts a rainbow in the sky because he wants it to not crush us. Because on that day when your sins catch up to you, when judgment seems at hand, when it seems that there could be life no more on this earth, he wants you to see that he has chosen a path of redemption for you. That he longs to love you. That he longs to accept you. And here's how. Because God knows in his plan of redemption that one day he would come to this earth. That he would come in the, man, in the person, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, as Jesus goes to the cross, all our foolishness, all our weakness, all our selfishness, all our, our death and destruction that we have brought on this earth will come to a head and the, 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 the weapon of judgment will once again be drawn back, but it won't be pointed at us. It'll be pointed at himself. That all of our vengeance, all of our violence, all of our hatred will find its just fulfillment, not in our death and destruction, but in his. That the waters of judgment would indeed flow, but they would flow upon his head and not ours. At least to those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God tells us the story of the flood because he knows who we are. He knows how wicked, how evil, how violent our hearts are, even if we pretend like they aren't. But God tells us the story of the flood because he knows who he is, how good, how patient, how loving he is. God tells us the story of the flood because as big as you think your evilness is, it's bigger but his grace and his mercy are bigger still. Let us turn to that hope in Jesus' name. Father, we come to you this morning as people who don't know what to do with ourselves some days. And God, we are prone to fear and to failure uh, like the rest of them. But God, I pray that as we hear your word, God, that you would break the layers of ice, the layers of stone that we have put in front of them. God, that you would convince us not just of our guilt, but of your steadfast mercy. God, that you would not just convince us that we indeed have done evil, but that you would convince us that you have done far more good. God, would you hide us in our Lord Jesus Christ, that in him we might find life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.